Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to Facing South, about 30% of black men in Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi are currently ineligible to vote because of the state's felony disenfranchisement laws. In April, a federal appeals court ruled that Florida does not have to change its process for restoring voting rights to people convicted of felonies. The ruling overturned a lower court's ruling that the process was unconstitutional because it includes no standards or guidelines and leaves the decision completely to Governor Rick Scott and other members of the state's clemency board. Scott established a mandatory five-year waiting period for people who have completed felony sentences. Since he took office in 2011, only 3,000 out of 1.5 million eligible voters have had their voting rights reinstated. Many applicants have waited for years and have not yet received a decision. Truthout reports that in a significant setback for transgender prisoners' rights, on May 11th, the Trump administration eliminated policies permitting transgender prisoners in federal prisons to use facilities that match their gender identity. The administration also informed federal officials that they should use so-called biological sex in screening, housing, and offering programming services. Richard Sands, a staff attorney at Lambda Legal, said, quote, There is no justification for this policy shift. It is a deliberate recipe for violence against transgender people based on inexcusable prejudice, unquote. Trans prisoners are sexually assaulted at a rate more than 13 times that of non-trans prisoners. Sands said that transgender women in particular experience much greater rates of sexual abuse than other prison populations especially if they're housed in men's facilities. The Trump administration's policy change came after four evangelical Christian women in a Texas prison sued, alleging that sharing facilities with transgender women endangered them. This week, we share the first part of a conversation between Dr. Nicole Siegel and Joe. After doing 10 years in prison for a sex offense conviction, Joe is now outside and navigating the difficult tightrope that many people convicted of such crimes must walk. A difficult topic to even discuss, Joe expresses the way that being on the sex offender registry affects all aspects of his life. Now here's Joe and Nicole. So Joe, what happens when you tell people that you have a sex offense conviction, just in general, that you have that category of conviction? One of the the biggest fears that I have in this current climate of uh, Mm -hmm. the Me Too and uh, uh, Time's Up movements that are going on with so many women having been uh, victimized sexually is that my face would become the face of their victimizers. I guess it's reported that uh, two out of four women have been sexually assaulted sometime in their life, Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult for me to uh, not get that look from across the table when I'm revealing and disclosing that that is my status from someone else. It's mm-hmm. just an immediate kind of a visceral kind of response that you get mm-hmm. from someone. General rejection that you would experience from people. People do not pursue a relationship with you on that. And I don't just mean uh, intimate relationships with the opposite sex. I'm talking about just general relationship. You know, community. People don't pursue community with someone who is a sex offender. Let's talk about the dilemma of revealing a person's actual charges when you have a sex offense. 
this is really where I think the weeds of the sex offense category come into play because, in fact, the sex offense is a category that includes an enormous array of misdeeds from sort of the, the absolute worst end of our nightmare imagination of the child rapist murderer to the other end of the basically, you know, innocent, absolvable person who had a consensual relationship with someone who was underage when they weren't that much older than the person or people who had consensual relationships and had sex in public or are actually convicted of something like public exposure, uh, public urination, or things that we actually don't imagine as that bad. It comes across as a rationalization or a minimalization of what right. you have done. Right. And uh, just, it, it just, it's very, very, very difficult and awkward to mm-hmm. try to explain to someone, well, this is what I did. And in my particular case, and I, I can say this much, is that I had uh, substance abuse issues, and I don't know if anyone knows what a blackout is called. Well, I was under the influence of alcohol, and I was in a blackout where I did, don't even remember what I did. And so I, I, I served 10 years in prison, nearly 10 years in prison on a minimum mandatory sentence, and I, I, I read what was said that I did, in the police reports and everything else, but I don't remember any of it. And if I tell someone that I don't remember doing this, it, mm-hmm. it makes it very difficult because I do have to accept the the narrative, the narrative of what happened. I have to accept that that's what happened and that, and that is what I did because mm-hmm. I don't know anything else. Mm-hmm. But I, I also know that it's not something that I ever did before or have done since when I'm when I was, you know, in my right mind. So I it's 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 very difficult. And then if you do say that to someone, that that person would say, Well what what happened if you became intoxicated again? Would you do mm-hmm. something like that again? You know? Right. So it makes it very difficult and, and it's it's kind of a catch twenty two by 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 right. disclosing and revealing. And when you also when you do reveal, especially if you have mitigating factors, um, you're kind of allowing the continuum to stay in place. You're kind of saying, well, everybody who did things that are worse than what I did, maybe they, you know, they're really bad, but I'm not that bad. So not only do you sometimes sound like you're making excuses, but then you're sort of throwing everybody else under the bus. Other people remain demonized so that you can absolve yourself and so that's why I asked you not to tell me the details of your case and so that I can have the same kind of ignorance that our listeners will have. You know, there's a kind of real prurient interest in the specifics of a sexual crime and there's just no reason to subject you to that. And there's just there's just no reason to reveal that. It's just it's nobody's business and it doesn't matter to the stories that you're going to tell us about what it's like to be on the registry of sex offenders. Maybe listeners will also be able to use the opportunity to encounter their own assumptions and maybe biases and maybe think about, what am I waiting to hear about Joe's sex offense? Or what would make it okay for me? Or what would make it sound like an excuse to me? And then we can encounter some of the biases that we have in ourselves about these various pieces of the criminal justice system. Like I said, it's, this is a very difficult thing to talk about because um, 
naturally when people hear this, there's a, a kind of a kind of a deer in the headlights look that people get in their eyes when you when you tell them. I can't I can't really explain more than that. This is really one of the anchors of the entire system of mass criminalization is the notion that there are these worsts of the worst that we need to protect society from. People in prison have a picture of what what they would mostly call a child molester. In prison, a sex offender is almost unilaterally labeled a child molester. So many times people would talk to me, and, and if you had to have a cellmate, a, a person, there are certain uh, prison politics that say, you know, a person is not going to sell up with someone who has that type of offense, and so you have mm -hmm. to tell the person, and that person has to make a decision whether you can live there or not. And then if you can't live mm -hmm. there, then you go to what is called the hole or to the box because you can't refuse mm -hmm. to live with anyone, even though someone could refuse to live with you. So you would have to go to solitary. And then, in many instances, in solitary, there's not enough room, so they have to double up themselves there. And then if you were to go into solitary with someone who doesn't like sex offenders, you would further have to probably fight. Or, you know, there were, there were instances where I had to fight to defend myself against people who attacked me. It was very difficult. You have to worry about the guards revealing your status to other inmates, to mm -hmm. other gangs. There were gangs in there mm -hmm. that had hierarchies where mm -hmm. people, what they called, had to pay rent to continue to live and walk on mainline. Mainline is when you are not in protective custody, when you're walking on the, the regular mainline, is walking in the regular prison population, uh, mm -hmm. should I say, unaccosted. But in order to do so, you would have to pay a particular person or a particular gang a certain amount of money uh, per month or however the arrangement would be. I was narrowly able to escape that, unlike many other people that I, I knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, to this day, can't tell you how that happened without going into some specifics that I would not rather not discuss because there are politics within this whole thing that sometimes there are things that you just don't say that happen. Mm -hmm. And there were other instances where I was uh, employed, you know, because everyone has to have a job in prison, and my job uh -huh. was a legal assistant. And I assisted other inmates in filing appeals and, and things of the like. People would not come to me, although I was qualified to do the work, they would not come to me because they found out about my sexual understatus. So they would go to someone else who might, who might have been not as proficient in mm -hmm. helping them you know, because I had prior legal experience before I mm -hmm. came into the prison system and kind of knew what I was doing, but people would not come to me. So that was a, that was a, it was always very isolating and you could never know who you were dealing with, how people felt about you. There were certain tables that you had to sit at. You couldn't be around certain people. You couldn't uh, lift weights. They didn't want anyone who was, who was a sex offender to lift weights or to be in, to be uh, physically active, and you couldn't, you know, just could not be in share the same space with certain people. So it was always a negotiation of space, and it, and it was it was fearful. It was fearful. It was, it was very scary at, at times. Many times there were certain people that I would just have to avoid because they wouldn't want and have to have anything to do with me. And 
uh, there were certain places, certain spaces that I just could not inhabit. And so I did have to walk around kind of with my head down and, and not make any noise. And, and I could not be my full self in many ways, you know, because I was not a full person, you know, in the eyes of most people in the prison system. I was less than. Upon release, the, the whole aspect of social death has been extremely difficult for me. Uh, I don't have any social currency. Uh, have no uh, identity within the larger society because I am just identified solely by my past sex offense. Um, that is who I am. That is what my identity is from 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 now on. And it's been very difficult on me and how I see myself in the world. Uh, it's, it's been very difficult. Even if I'm sitting and you talked earlier about disclosure, if I'm sitting and disclosing or talking about this with a friend, say in a restaurant, I am mm-hmm. very conscious of my voice that I'm not uh-huh. uh, speaking too loudly. I'm wondering uh-huh. if someone has overheard me. It's mm-hmm. just you know, and and you begin to believe that you know there's a a scarlet letter or some identifying mark that some people can see. Of course, that's not, in most cases, that's not how it is. But you feel that way. It was very difficult to parole officers. Weren't very supportive and basically told me that uh, I could not go to church. I could not seek any spiritual uh, support. I couldn't go to church. I could not go to a Buddhist meditation center where I used to uh, meditate when I was inside. I could not engage in any of those things. Most churches and most... uh, uh, spiritual centers have insurance underwriters that uh, worry about liability of someone uh, harming someone on the premises. So they have to check with their board of directors. They have to check with their insurance underwriters to find out. They have to have chaperones that are trained to escort someone so that they can be on the premises so that there's no risk of a person reoffending or harming one of their members. I couldn't go to the mall shopping. I could not go to the library. I was living in a transitional housing, and my parole officer came to visit me one day, and I was not there, and there was a mailbox. And in the building where I live, they hold Narcotics Anonymous meetings, and there are large groups of people that come out into the lobby where the Uh mailboxes are. She stuck her card that identified her as from the sex offender unit on my mailbox in full view of the public. This is how I was treated and I was compliant. I was going to sex offender treatment. I was paying my supervision fees. I had not reoffended. I had not had any uh, dirty UAs for, you know, or drugs or alcohol or anything. And yet I was still constantly berated and, and, and not supported by the people who wanted to see me succeed in the community and, and for there to be public safety in mind. I was told that they were the, the parole officials were there to, to, to help me transition and that I should be honest and speak to them. And whenever I did, I just received uh, just, it was, it was like a horror story. And it was, I, I'm still, uh, even in my voice right now, I don't know, I'm, I'm, my heart is beating again. I've been off of parole now for almost a year. Uh-huh. And I still think about, I still think about that, uh, those instances where I was not allowed to go to school. I was discouraged from uh, 
going to school, saying, well, what would you want to do that for anyway? No one, you're not going to be able to get a job doing that. And that was just the general uh, attitude of the, uh, the the officials. And, and then it was very difficult uh, just forming relationships in recovery because I'm a recovering alcoholic. In, in order to go to a meeting and to talk about things that they do in Alcoholics Anonymous and to form relationships with people, you know, a support group within that, that arena of uh, recovery, it becomes very difficult because there is a, a, a component of transparency that exists within uh, uh, 12-step groups that I'm not able to fully engage because mm-hmm. I can't disclose to people that because I have made the mistake of talking about and outing myself one time, and I was rejected by people in mass. I had to learn the hard way not to uh, to reveal fully uh, certain things within the 12-step uh, uh, arena because you would not be validated. And this, these were these uh, and 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 these were issues that are. Uh, Across many continuums, because as an African American man, it was sometimes that I would have to try to talk about my experience as an African American man in recovery, yeah. and these these types of things were not received either. So it was it was a learning experience. You know, my recovery is is such a big part of my life, and and that's been probably the most difficult thing because it's been uh, difficult for me to maintain relationship or community, and I don't just mean relationships with with the opposite sex. I'm talking about just relationships in general with people, friendly relationships and companions. So it's, it's been very difficult. There's a general, I guess, consensus amongst most white people, most white Americans, that blacks are salacious and salubrious and that they right. want to want to rape white women, and it just right. plays into the, the stereotype that black men want to rape white women, mm. and so it's 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 pretty uh it's just it's not a, it's what they to use a, an expression it's just not a good look for <laughs> you to uh, <laughs> it's just, wow it's just it's just not a good look. Part of the racist projections of. American history involves the excessive sexuality projected onto both men and women, African-American men and women, yes. right? Black yes. men is wanting to rape, and black women is unrapeable, and these are really anchors of racist and sexist ideas in this country and have been for a very, very long time. Even to to talk about something like that, then again, mm-hmm. sounds like a rationalization or a minimalization of what is happening. Right. You, you know, it's it's just it's just it's just it's it's nuts. Most mm-hmm. of the time, I'm I'm walking on eggshells, and mm-hmm. how I could be able to relate and to to negotiate life and space and and community. It's it's a continual balancing act that I'm I'm trying to do, and it and it, quite quite frankly it's exhausting most times, and and okay. and I found myself I found myself less likely to be gregarious or outgoing, and I found myself kind of uh, uh, more introverted than I I have ever mm-hmm. been. Like even me talking right now, this is the most I've probably talked about this in close to six months or a year because I've wow. I've not been confronted 
with, because uh, there are certain of my friends that I've had this conversation with about mm-hmm. six months or a year ago so that they would know and so that they would feel comfortable because there was a, there was a period where I was, as a result of uh, uh, the, the lack of housing for sex offenders, I was homeless. And I had mm-hmm. to try to explain to some friends, hey, you know, why it would be okay for me to stay with them. And I had to tell them the particulars of my case, what happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was very difficult. And, and, and there were some within, because it was some friends of mine who had lived in a house and all shared, uh, they all shared uh, different responsibilities and all paid. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was kind of staying in the garage on a, on a mm-hmm. couch. Well, uh-huh. all of the, the residents of the house had to come to an agreement about me staying there. And I found out later that one of the people who, I guess you could say reluctantly agreed to let me stay there for a short period of time, later on, they wanted to make me, when I, when I started working and when I got back on my feet from that mm-hmm. kind of period of homelessness, they wanted to uh, make me a regular resident. And this person said no. And it, and it made me realize that that person never really was on board with me being around at the time. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it, it made me feel a little badly because maybe he felt pressured by his other roommates to let me stay there because they were more on board with it than he was. But I, mm-hmm. I, I, this, is, this is what I often find out, that people who seem to accept what I've told them Mm-hmm. secretly or to themselves uh, really want nothing to do with me. I usually find this out later by some somewhere or another that this person really wants nothing to do with me. What a terrible seed of doubt that is to have planted in your mind that anybody you're engaging with, especially if you're having a positive engagement with them, might actually be hiding secret resentments and might be gearing up to reject you later. That must be a tremendous burden to carry into your relationships with people. It's exhausting. I've never in my life had to carry such a burden, and to carry it now for the rest of my life as a lifetime registry candidate, it's been it's it's just been exhausting. I live in the state of Oregon, and currently there are some particular instances where you can have relief from registration, but the state is started a new system where they're going to start a level system where they're going to have like the most dangerous who would be the predatory types who maybe have reoffended multiple times or have been predators in some way. And then there's the you know, that continuum you talked about with the person who was least, let's say, violent or whatever. I, I, I don't know how the system is supposed to work out. But this is something that was supposed to have been in place by 2019, and I was told that I'm going to receive uh, – a questionnaire that is extremely lengthy that asks a lot of questions and I'm to fill it out and to return it. And that based on that, they'll make a decision on what level of risk or category that I'd fall into. And according to that, then I would be eligible or not eligible for relief from registration. And I did pursue that recently, and this is what I was told, that it's too soon because they have not declared a level on me yet. And I have not received the questionnaire. I'm supposed to receive it by the end of 2018 sometime uh-huh. and return it. But I, as yet, I have not received it. So I'm kind of in a limbo. It's 
becomes almost like an out-of-body experience where you're, you're kind of watching yourself through the lens of uh, everyone else. It, 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 it's, it's very strange. It's kind of, like I said, it's like almost like an out-of-body experience. It's like you're not, mm-hmm. you're not yourself anymore. You're who other people see you as, and it's, it's debilitating. Uh, mm-hmm. One sense of identity, one sense of self is, is just consistently and, and, and always compromised. When people say the word horrible, I almost feel like I know the, the no horrible personified. And there are people who would say, well, you did something horrible. Uh, you deserve that. You deserve that feeling. You know, I, I don't know. I'm responsible for what I did. That's all I can say. I, I'm very fortunate that uh, there's a particular social service agency here in Oregon that, you know, provides housing, although limited uh, opportunities for housing for sex offenders, but they do. Uh, otherwise, I would be basically living under a bridge. Like uh, there was a story uh, coming out of Florida some years ago about the, the, the treatment of sex offenders. Actually, there was a book written about it how many of them were relegated to a place under the bridge because they, they will not have any housing for them. And there are so many restrictions about where a sex offender can live, right? I don't I don't have those some of those restrictions now. Some of those restrictions are gone because I'm off of parole. Like, I can now go to the library. I can now go to the mall. But uh, still, uh, there are certain buildings and certain residences that they're near a daycare or near a, a, a park where children congregate. Yeah, I can't rent. I can't rent there. And there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, buildings and, and residences that are near parks and schools. And so, right. yeah, these are places that I cannot rent. I would assume that because of the the extreme trauma that is associated with sexual assault mm-hmm. and the lasting effects of that trauma that could carry on through even generations mm-hmm. uh, just as Holocaust survivors, even though they're, the Holocaust survivors' grandchildren experience post-traumatic stress and never spend a day in a concentration camp, that uh, uh, because of the lingering effects of sexual assault upon women and upon men or whoever the, the victim was, uh, I think that uh, there are people who believe that the difficulties and the horrors and the pain that I'm going to go through for the rest of my life are deserved or well-deserved. I'm, I'm receiving my just deserts. I, I believe that. I, I don't know that, but I believe it's the best that I've been able to ascertain through my experience. In order to believe that, you have to be so punitive. You just have to really believe that punishment is what everybody deserves. And you also have to assume that everybody who has this category of offense, who's on the sex offense registry, is is a terrible monster. You know, it's a terrible demon. Is not. Whereas, as we know, there are many people who are convicted of sex offenses who have convictions for things that are much less severe or who were grossly overcharged, perhaps because of racism. Most of the charges that I was charged with, which were mandatory minimum charges here in the state of Oregon, I was found not guilty of most of the charges. Uh, And the case was originally charged as a misdemeanor and then raised up to mandatory minimum felony charges. 
as I said, it's, it's very difficult to talk about some of this stuff without sounding that I'm being yeah. very self-serving. It's, it's, this is a constant balancing act, mm-hmm. a constant tightrope that I walk when I talk to anyone about this. As I said, it's, it's, it's exhausting. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.